The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey, Rockheads, quit running from the turkey zombies and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 291 with guest Kent Allstad, recorded live at Dev Connections in Las Vegas, Wednesday, November 7, 2007. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net. Training developers to work smarter. And now, bringing world-class expert-led training in C-Sharp, ASP.NET, VB.NET, SharePoint, BizTalk, TeamSystem, and Workflow Foundation on-site to your development team. Details online at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Data Dynamics, makers of ActiveReports.net. Simple, powerful, and cost-effective reporting for Windows Forms and ASP.NET web applications. Online at www.datadynamics.com. Support is also provided by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com And now, the man whose only scalability is breaking them. Don't hate me, Carl requested that joke. Carl Franklin. Thank you very much, Lawrence, and welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin here once again for your .NET listening pleasure. Richard Campbell, how are you, sir? Jet lagged. <laughs> I just got back from Barcelona a couple days ago, still shaking it off. You know what I don't understand? The last year when I went to Barcelona, the food was so good. Maybe it was because Fernando brought us to all the right places. Yes. But I've heard more than one person say they didn't like the food in Barcelona. And I'm like, are you high? <laughs> but you know, the, and you're right. I definitely had hit or miss this year because it totally depends huh. on whether you know where to go. And I did see Fernando, but I didn't get a chance to have dinner with him. In fact, uh, Greg and I, because we were there for the IT forum weeks, so it was all run as radio. Uh, we were so busy. We just didn't even have the energy to go looking. I went downtown only once on the subway and we hit a place called Four Cats, and it was off the hook good. It was a place where Picasso and Gaudi used to hang out. <laughs> and we used to pay for his meals with uh, with signatures, right? Or body <laughs> parts. I don't know. One of them. Yeah, one of them. All right, Richard. Well, let's get right into Better Know a Framework. All right, Mr. Franklin. What you got for me? 
Well, um, to continue on the iDisposable theme that right. we've been talking about, I want to talk about the GC class because this is an inherent part of the iDisposable pattern. So the GC class controls the system garbage collector. Uh, it's a service that automatically reclaims unused memory. And for the most part, you don't have to worry about it. When an object goes out of scope, meaning it's no longer touched by any code or no longer has any references, then it's unused, right? Right. And it gets, unlike COM, which deallocates the object immediately with the reference counting, you know, it add, you add a reference to it, a counter goes up, you dereference it, a counter goes down. When it hits zero, boom, it gets deallocated. Well, the garbage collector just marks them and it they sit in a in a basically in a queue of generations which is more than enough to uh, constitute another show believe me huge issue and i don't want to get into everything there but but basically they get marked and when there's enough memory pressure meaning that the uh, garbage collector sees that it needs more memory then it goes and it uh, deallocates these objects now the ones that don't have finalizers in them in other words sort of a destructor code that's going to run at the end of life before the object is destroyed. Those that don't have a finalizer immediately get uh, deallocated. And those that do have a finalizer, those finalizers have to get called, right? Right. So the garbage collector calls them all on a low-priority background thread. And if the finalized code in a particular object takes too much time, it just goes away. It doesn't get a chance to do its thing. So the, it's kind of a tricky ballet that you have to do when implementing the iDisposable uh, uh, pattern. And I would just encourage you to take a look at the docs and listen to that show that we did early, early on in .NET Rocks with Chris Sells to get a really good overview of how that works. And you know who else is a, a guru of uh, generations and garbage collection is Mark Dunn. Absolutely. So there you go. It's the GC class, and that's in uh, system.gc, system.gc. And speaking of Mark Dunn, I got to point you to this email. All right. This is from uh, Robert Kane, the Arcane Coder. Yeah, we know Robert. Dear Carl, Richard, and Mark, I just got done listening to show 288, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. The format was a nice change of pace, and I enjoyed the reporter in the field style. Yeah. I've long thought that with the number of conferences that occur, there were lots of good interviews to be had. I believe arming a few select prop reporters with audio, perhaps Mark Dunn and Mark Miller to start with, would yield some interesting shows. It was fascinating to see how developers from other parts of the world interacted and empowered themselves to learn, leveraging tools like .NET Rocks and .NET U. You know, it just occurred to me. Of course, we've been doing it all wrong. <laughs> let's let's send some other sucker out to these conferences so that we can stay home with our wives and there goof you around. Go. <laughs> well, and there's a whole other discussion to have here about the different kinds of shows we can get from a right. conference. We've tried them all. Yep. And uh, and the, certainly this reporter style was an interesting idea. And I didn't know how it was going to go. I really enjoyed the show myself. Me too. But it's always a challenge is how do the listeners respond to that? Well, I, I, I love introducing a new format just because it mixes things up and it it really you sort of remember that you know that we are not the format we just use a format so yeah we're trying anything we can to communicate information in a useful way sure 
That's really our job. But let me finish the email. Okay. Speaking of .NET U, I'd like to add a hearty aye-aye to Mark's praise of Doug Tenure. Mm-hmm. Doug is a developer evangelist for Alabama, Georgia, and Mississippi, and he does a great job. His concept of .NET U is really going to empower the community to teach itself. If you recall way back in episode 200, Mark mentioned having given the keynote at a code camp, then flying to Pwop to do the show. Well, it was the same code camp that held the first .NET U, of which I was a proud graduate. Our photo is still up on the alumni page, the very first one you'll see. Unfortunately, I wound up standing right in front of the U when the photo was taken, so it looks like I have a set of horns. <laughs> you should look into getting Doug on your show to talk about .NET U. It's a great concept that could really take off. Yeah. Monday, November 12th, I'll be in Atlanta at a new .NET U event. I believe Mark mentioned this one on BizTalk. Of course, that yep. date's already gone by, so sorry about that, Robert. I know you value brevity, so I'll wrap this up, and we'll keep listening while I wait for you guys to put on a SQL Server show. Kim and Paul, are you listening? Thanks, Robert Kane from Birmingham, Alabama. (laughs) Yeah, Kim and Paul. Yeah, what's up with those guys? What's up with those guys? (laughs) (laughs) Don't worry, Robert, we're working on it. I swear we're working on it. All right, well, you know, change is in the air this fall. I can feel it, Uh, you know, everyone around me. Things seem to be changing so fast. Oh, yeah. And if you're looking for a change of pace in your career, maybe you want to think about going to New York City for a year and uh, working for Infusion. That's uh, Mr. Greg Brill and his ingenious band of uh, .NET talent down there in Manhattan working in the financial district. Listen, they're going to put you up in an apartment rent-free for a year. They're going to move you out there. They're going to treat you like royalty. And they just need some really talented people to help uh, realize their vision for their customers. So if you're interested in that deal or maybe you're interested in uh, working for them in Boston or London or I think even Canada, they, they have a few offices. Yeah, there's an office over. in Toronto. Yeah, an office in Toronto. Go to shrinkster.com slash KH6 for that information. Well, uh, Richard, let's introduce this show. This was uh, recorded previously at Dev Connections right? when we were there last week. And this is an interview with Kent Alstad about ASP.NET scalability. Absolutely. Let's just roll it. Okay. Hey, Las Vegas. Welcome to .NET Rock. <laughs> I'm Carl Franklin. Richard Campbell's here. Hey, sir. How are you? I'm doing fine, and we're in front of a throng. I say a throng of people here at Dev Connections. We're very happy to be here, of course. It's been a great show. 5,000-plus people are here. Yeah, I thought about 5,500, and you only really notice it when they all go to lunch at the same time. (laughs) Yeah, and they don't have enough tables. Did you like that? Did you like the whole tables, not enough tables thing? I don't know. But uh, lunch was good. The food was great. I, I, didn't, I didn't get a chance to eat lunch today. What was for lunch? Braised ribs, dude. Better than pasta anyway. Now everybody's still awake. But yeah, braised ribs are good. Yeah, he's Canadian. Don't Sorry. hold it against yeah. Are we going to do the Canadian thing right away? I say process and data, okay? <laughs> Take a breath. It's okay. Well, our guest also... Okay, one guy clapping. Our guest... <laughs> Our guest also happens to be from Canada. He is none other than Kent Alstad. Hi, Kent. Hi, Carl. How are you? It's going great, eh? 
Yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> Come on. I'm going to give Canadians a bad name pretty quick, eh? <laughs> so this, the story of the show comes from the uh, last time you were on the show, which was TechEd US in Orlando. We did an ASP.NET scalability panel, and we had Rob Howard and Steve Smith and, uh, and you, and there was somebody else. Who was that? Stephen Forte. And Stephen Forte. Of course, I always forget Stephen Forte. <laughs> uh, well, what a great discussion that was. And it, and it sparked Fabulous. a ton of email, a ton of feedback about it. And really, one of the comments was, boy, that's Ken Alstead. He knows a lot of stuff. I'd love to talk to him some more about scalability and ASP.NET. So I, I thought we'd generally go in that direction, but I don't want to confine you in any way. And we do have a microphone on the floor. So uh, the folks in the audience, if they want to throw out some questions, please uh, use the mic. So we can hear you and we can uh, record you. You can be part of the show. And uh, well, well see I, I just want to call out a couple things first because I met Kent, um, what, about a year and a half ago? Two, no, maybe two years ago. Yeah. I guess it was two years ago uh, in Amsterdam. And uh, let me just tell you some stuff about Kent that he probably won't share. Um, he's a very, very, very talented man. Uh, one of these mad genius got kind of guys. You can see that by his hair. I got compared to Gene Wilder a number of times today, so I'm going to have to cut it short and get it frizzier, apparently. He's the kind of a guy who picked up a guitar and then one day said, you know what, I don't like this tuning, and then went, and figured out how to relearn, how to, taught himself how to play the guitar with another tuning, and said, yeah, I like this better. I think I'll do this from now on. And he can play stuff that nobody else can play. So uh, I really admire his, uh, his talents, not only as a musician, but of course... Uh, as a software developer and, a, and an architect. Holy mackerel. I, I'm embarrassed. Uh, thank you very much. I appreciate it. I, it's, I, thank you so, very much. Well, yeah, you probably wouldn't say that about yourself. Uh, well, my, yeah, no, I no, wouldn't. No, no, I'm having trouble believing it, even as I hear it, quite frankly. So why don't you start uh, this conversation, Richard, since uh, you and uh, can't do some work together. Well, and funny, we just came out of a discussion on scaling, so there were, I think there were some things we didn't address in that, and I wanted to sort of jump in midstream on, on some of the uh, discussions around it. Uh, good question is where to start. You know, uh, we've been studying very large-scale ASP.NET sites as part of Strange Loop. And uh, we bra blazed over the sort of data access technique, these sort of extreme scale solutions where you finally have to scale out the database, which most people have been told, you just can't do that. Yeah, right. Um, honestly, there was one of the, uh, it was probably the most popular question after the session. I had people come up and, you know, talk to me about caching and, you know, why it, why it is that I, it's a very ambiguous topic because you gain a lot of performance by caching database uh, queries in the process space of the caller in your application space. And the problem with that is that uh, your application logic gets quite a bit more complex. And so it's you know, substantially faster. We argued 100 times faster. Uh, even when SQL Server is cached up that data, uh, really the, the, the performance benefit comes in the fact that you're no longer serializing the data into your process space. But the problem then is that you've got an invalidation paradigm, which often is very, very challenging for many developers to understand. And actually, uh, one of the a main comment that I don't think I got in was that it's really the cost per feature starts to really go up in your application once you've scaled 
and, and use this type of performance technique. So imagine it's a, a, just so powerful to, you know, you know I've got uh, static data that is in my database. You know, I'm data-driven application. I've cached that all, all up on, in my application server. I've, uh, you know, I've built, I've, I'm now starting to consume memory on my application server, which is discardable, but, you know, it, it, it's much, much faster. But then when I go to build more features, Every new developer has to understand how to work with this uh, caching model, and mostly they have to start analyzing the code to figure out how to invalidate it. And it, you know, they, they use SQL Server invalidation, and sometimes uh, we look at uh, invalidation between application servers if the data that we're caching didn't come from SQL Server, and we start getting code that's a lot more complex, which is it's a double-edged sword. On one hand, it's this immense performance benefit, and everybody loves it, and uh, you know. Uh, I built many caching uh, objects in my lifetime, and I will continue to do so, but I think that what management and people who own these applications have to understand is now my price per feature goes up significantly. And often the developers that I get to build that application are also, I have to educate them now on how, the, how this caching tier works and when it's appropriate to cache. And how much analysis do I have to do to figure out, you know, the invalidation? You know, what other sets, when this, when this update happens, you know, how do I go through the invalidation of all my cached objects? And so there's a large, there's a debug cycle, and, and it, so it not only takes more money to develop the application in the first place, it takes more expertise, and there's a longer debug cycle. So I, I, it's, it's a great and powerful technique. Uh, people are using it. They're using it to their advantage. But I think it's largely underestimated. The, the downside is often not understood. And it might be the price you just have to pay. You have no choice. I, that's the only way I can get my dynamic application to perform, and I can accept that. But I hope the project manager who's uh, scheduling that project or who's staffing that project also understands that there's this human resource implication. battle I've seen in the the issue around data caching more than anything was debugging, was the page works and it's fast and it's wrong. Yeah. <laughs> it's showing the wrong data and you, can, and you can go and query the database and see the right data, but then you go and look at the web page and it's the wrong data. So, you know, correctness trumps speed, right? If you're playing cards, you know that, you know, correctness trumps speed every time. And uh, the reality is that you have to understand how to get uh, correctness, first of all, and then you build in this, this cached performance and you get, you get speed and then you get this battle going back and forth where I, I, you know, there's, a, there's a, a couple videos on MySpace where they liken uh, caching and the, all the work that goes on to painting the Brooklyn Bridge. I think it's the Golden Gate, actually, because the Brooklyn Bridge is made of bricks. Oh, okay. I'm it's just the saying. Golden Gate Bridge. <laughs> Excuse me. Apparently, I don't have a good memory for that. Wait, are you, How do you, know you that? Yeah, you're, you're doing this How to do me. How do you know that, dude? What? You're a freak. What? Am I, I wrong? Is it, I mean, the bro <laughs> <laughs> he is not wrong. <laughs> so I'm not wrong. The Brooklyn Bridge is made of bricks. You know, I live an hour and a half from New York, and I didn't even know that. <laughs> it's the Golden Gate Bridge that they have to keep painting because it's made of steel. Okay. The Golden Gate Bridge. They finish painting it. The moment they finish painting it, the project starts again, and they start painting from the other end. Or uh, Lord knows which end do they start painting. Uh, that's probably a... A good trivia question. But uh, the idea is that performance and scalability when it comes to caching is this constant effort. And what happens is that the moment you finish doing it, you start applying it. Well, by the way, while you're implementing all that last caching, we built two other features. Now can you please go back and start applying it to those two new features? So that there's a, it's like a constant effort that gets applied to it. And I think that 
for me, the most disturbing part of that is normally the very best developers on your team are the ones that are doing that type of work. And I've got to tell you, no customer that I know of uh, really cares. They just they, they want a feature, right? They, they expect a new feature. It either works website. or it doesn't work. To yeah, them. yeah. I mean, and, and if it doesn't perform, it's just not worth using, right? So the problem is that they're not paying for this performance. They're expecting it. And that's where your most talented resources are going, which is kind of, for me, as, a, you know, as, a, as an application owner, it's very frustrating. You know, I, I want to I find other ways to make it simpler. I've also found that, that perform, performance tuning not only is very unrewarding work in the sense that, that people don't appreciate it. I mean, generally my experience with guys when I've, we've done performance tuning is we took a feature that worked but was slow and we broke it. And eventually we made it work again and presumably it was faster. I find it burns developers out. Like they get, they get unhappy. You've got to get them on a – it's nice to say, point at a feature and say, I made that feature. It's much tougher to point at a chart and say, I saved 10 milliseconds. Right. I, developers are much more into creating things than maintaining things in general. I yeah, just making things faster is just not, I don't think, the same reward. I, I get a real kick out of making things go fast. <laughs> that, that explains the hair, really. Oh, no, yeah, there's a few out there. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I find it strangely enough the uh, exact opposite, that often the senior developers are the ones that are fascinated by optimizing code. And they're the exact people that are the best at developing the features, right? And so given a choice, hey, Joe, where do you want to work? Well, hey, can I rewrite the caching model? Can I, you know, hey, I want, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to build a new caching infrastructure where all the reads are coming from the cache and all the writes are, and there's new partitions. It's just great. They've got all these ideas. And the reality is that that's fascinating for them. And it just doesn't, doesn't really get seen. You know, the owner of that business, if they knew that all their best resources didn't go into visible uh, components or visible features for their users, are normally pretty disturbed, right? So... I know a lot of really great developers that just pride themselves on high-performance code. You know, let's, hey, let's lose non-blocking I.O. for everything, you know. Let's redo our database model. And it's fascinating, but, you know, the code gets really complex. And they, then they pride themselves on the fact that they can understand this, this complex code, which is, you know, again. Yeah, they great. wear like a badge. Yeah, it's like, yeah. <laughs> hey, it was I hard to write. It should be hard to read. non-blocking I.O., right? And, and, <laughs> I'm not sure if that would be good on a shirt or not. I understand. Thinkgeek.com. <laughs> well, um, caching, of course, isn't the only problem but with scalability or the only solution to scalability. It seems that there's always a bottleneck. And I think it was Stephen Smith who, who used that line with me. He says, there's always a bottleneck no matter how scalable, how scaled up you are. Um, and scaling up is the process of removing one bottleneck and discovering the next bottleneck. Right. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think that the first part of all of that is being able to instrument enough to know where your bottleneck is. Uh, you know, altogether, most of the people I know, when they, they end up with a performance or scaling problem, they discover that in production. Right, and, and that's that's normal. Actually, they, they how do you find how did you find out that you know your, your image serving was, and and caching images was your problem? Oh, well, you know, I, I started looking at what was going on in my production, or or worse yet, your customers started phoning, or the IT guy came to you and said, "Look, at I've been I've been watching the, the you know the IIS server in the, with these metrics, and you know here's what I see going on." So, myself, I think that the, the start of all that is to instrument. And test either test before you go into production. I, heaven forbid. I mean, te- you know, <laughs> do, you know, doing doing load tests before going into production, which 
you know, we took polls all over the audience, you know, how many people, you know, do unit testing? Oh, lots of people are unit testing. How many people, you know, have a test group that tests all the features of their code? Well, everybody has somebody who tests the feature. How many people do load tests to find out how their application be behaves under load prior to, to shipping? You know, and all of a sudden, so few hands are going up. And it's as though that type of scaling and that type of testing of scale is just not something that people normally think of. So absolutely agree that you know finding one bottleneck after another is what you do, but you actually have to start by doing that load testing and kind of start down the path because once you encounter it in production, these usually the solutions are not simple and you're in trouble at that point. You know, you can't re-architect in three days, you know, something, a, a scalability problem. So when, you, when it comes to load testing, you take your favorite tool. Let's talk a little bit of practical information here. You take your tool like the Visual Studio testing tools. You might yes. use, uh, uh, who are the other guys that have the... There's Silk Performer. Yeah, there's Silk. Mercury Load Runner. There's Spirant Avalanche. I would point out you just listed three... Redgate has $100,000 products. Uh, Redgate has a product too. Yep. Right. Yeah. So, automated QA. Automated QA. Right. So, so you take your testing to whatever it is. You run it. You, you say however many thousands of users you want to simulate, and you get a line. Okay. Now what? I mean, well, there's so many little things to tweak to see if where that goes. So before we get to that question, normally it's I go to my IT department and I try to construct an environment, which is why it doesn't happen, by the way. I have to construct a whole load testing environment, depending right. on what tool I choose. I might have multiple load generation uh, tools, and then, uh, of course, I'm on, I need a separate network, by the way, because I can't be thrashing my network when I do this. I need a separate set of servers, because when I'm under load, if anybody else is using those, you know, it, it, you know they're, they're in trouble. So, and those servers know, really so, ought to look like my production environment, so absolutely. I have some benchmarks that are relevant to what we're doing. So there's a lot of barriers before we hit that first bump. So now imagine we got through all those, and you're right. an expert negotiator. You, you, you know how to sweet-talk the finance person. You yeah, it only took a week, right? It only uh -huh. took three months to finally get there. Yeah. Are, are, we, are we hitting buttons here? Show, clap your hands if we're... All right. We've all been in that discussion. Yeah. I mean, this is not a trivial thing. It's the difference between the development environment, the QA environment, and then the load test environment, I generally call it a pre-production environment, which may... You know, the, I find that the development environment is built so the developers can work efficiently. QA environment tends to reflect the developer's environment because they're relatively closely coupled. But then the pre-prod environment has to reflect the production environment. Correct. It may not be 100% the same. I may not have 20 servers. I only have five. But they're the same ones. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm not 100% sold on how my... I, I would prefer to have a... If I, versus the three months I'm going to wait. I mean, imagine that it takes the three months. By the way, you've already shipped. You're in production at that point, and you're finding out later that this is the problem. So, you know, we never actually had the three months. It, it just took that long to get it. Right. You know, I, I might... <laughs> I, I, what, 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 what I would do is I would create VMware, uh, you know, scenarios where I, you know, did it the best I could with Visual uh, Studio Test. I would, you know, I would go to, you know, a poorer, simpler solution to start getting... Get to in. start hitting my first bottleneck. The, really, the question is, how long is it going to take you until you find out my first bottleneck? Right. And so now we make it to your question. 
Right. How do I determine the bottleneck? Right. So am I memory bound? Am I CPU bound? Am I I/O bound? Okay. It's not. It's not rocket science. I mean, there's. It's not going to be. It, it, unfortunately, the problem is getting there. Normally, that's that's the issue. But then I start in driving load to try to figure out. You know, where is my bottleneck? So you would try turning on output caching. Maybe you would try. Uh, I wouldn't try turning on any, anything. Yeah. I would try driving the application to into its driving it to death. Right. Yeah. Find death. out where it failed. The, right. the kill point. Yeah. The the point of load testing in that situation is to I, I don't I don't want to change anything. Right. In fact, okay. I, I, I would actually be against changing anything. The idea is to actually find out what the problem is. Often what happens is you well, start changing that's things something and, that and I you would, obscure it. That's something I would think that you would do is, is make changes to see how it responds to those changes to find out where you know the, the, the time is being taken. That, is that a, a good technique? I mean, that's your basic problem solving. Um, I so would I, say that's more of a trial and error technique. Okay. That's something I might do when I was developing an application and unit testing before I'd even come to the point uh, of load testing. But once I'm actually load testing, uh, you know, I put on my white lab coat um, I do have one of those, actually, in my office. <laughs> and I, uh, I, I want to take a real methodical approach to this. And so the idea, like, I would be so frustrated if I was working with somebody and they changed something between load tests, if I couldn't reproduce my load test, if anything changes, it becomes a problem, right? So what you want to do is hammer it until it dies without any changes. I want to be able to recreate it and see that it dies the same way the next time. So you, so the, then you want to just look at the times that it took to do certain things. That's where you're going to make your correct. Donation. So then, so then I'm going to start looking at uh, when it died. What happened? Oh, I ran out of memory. I had a working set of 700 or more megabytes. My application uh, pool recycled, and I lost all my sessions. And you know, it looked real bad. One of the most disturbing facts is that understanding what your application looks like when it dies is different for everybody and often very difficult to recognize. People will, your application will die and most of the time it'll be mistaken as a bug. Yeah, because okay? it, and, and that, view, with a viewpoint on it being the browser, you just get an right, ASP.NET right. error. Right, and, and it's not server unavailable. And, every, and you know, the IT guy is going, well, if it was, if it was no, there wasn't a bug, I would be just getting server unavailable every time. That's the, that's the only reasonable response for an application that's working logically correctly but is erroring out. And instead, what you're getting is, uh, you know, some sort of contention error, error on a cache where two people were trying to, you know, hit the same resource at the same time. And you got actually a, you know, a programmatic problem that was only exposed under load. Now, my favorite one is object not found. Oh, yeah. Because <laughs> the worker process recycled and your session is now gone, but you're in, your browser didn't know that, so it's got all these constructs in view state or elsewhere that it then feeds back to the web server, and it's just, what session? Yeah, what session? At least we have in the .NET framework and in ASP.NET, we have nice detailed exceptions with call stacks and things, and, you know, I don't have to tell you guys if you remember before that what trying to find bugs in any kind of web app was like. Any kind of Absolutely. app, forget about it. Absolutely. And so, so you know, now that I'm looking at my exception, you have to understand that a lot of exceptions only occur under load. And now you've got this whole different eye to looking at a routine, and you're trying to figure out, well, when there was one user, why did it work correctly? And when, when there was a 1,000 simultaneous users, you know, 
Why did it fail? And actually, now when I rerun the test, I've got a thousand simultaneous users, and it doesn't fail until a particular point. Oh, what happened at that point? Uh, you you ran out of you, you started garbage collecting, and it started dumping cash. And the problem was it started hitting the database. I mean, unfortunately, a lot of these problems to understand logically what's wrong in your application is really difficult, right? There's it's there's not you know there's not some debugger that really helps you out in those situations. Often, you actually have to be able to grok and understand what is logically wrong with my code and how I'm, how, what sync lock am I I'm going to introduce to fix my problem, for example. Hey, this is Carl. I just want to take a minute out of the show to tell you about Telerik Q2 2000 Tools Update, which can be summed up this way. Blazing fast performance for ASP.NET, WPF-like visual effects for Windows Forms, and codeless reporting. The AJAX-based content editor is now 76% faster and much more intuitive. The grid also received a performance boost, plus PDF export, frozen columns, and they've even added a new awesome scheduling component. What I find even more intriguing is Telerik's Windows Form Suite. It's unbelievable that it offers WPF-like visual effects like scaling, rotation, object motion, transparencies, and so on without WPF. As a result, you could have grids, tree views, ribbons, and more with a previously impossible level of interactivity and appeal. Telerik has recently added cab support, which makes the component set a perfect fit for large enterprise applications. Lastly, with Telerik reporting... You can create advanced business reports in Windows, Web, or PDF format using pretty much design time only. Wizards, expression builders, and converters help you with the design, styling, and integration. You'll also be amazed to see some unique features like CSS-like styling and conditional formatting. See what all the fuss is about. Download a trial at Telerik.com. And don't forget to thank them for sponsoring .NET Rocks. Think about how difficult it is to find a memory leak in an object. I mean, have you been there? Have you uh, actually tried? Well, no, I've never had a memory leak. No, no, no. no, no, no. <laughs> I don't know what you're Being talking about. Being the guy to debug that. <laughs> yeah, I, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I think the bugs that are, if, if you imagine logical errors that you can reproduce uh, with a single user in a repro case, imagine that the bug you're trying to find happens at a thousand transactions a second after four hours. And it's like, and you can't reproduce it unless you take the four hours. And you go, well, let's crank it up to 2,000 requests a second, have it happen in two hours. Does not happen. Right? Right. So you get into these really difficult states, which, you know, it's almost like you now understand why that stuff's avoided. Right? Because it's, you know, it's really tough slogging. And unfortunately, there's no substitute for understanding. Uh. You, You have to go through it. I can live with the four-hour one. It's the 23-hour one that kills me. (laughs) Unfortunately, uh, There's a story there, Richard. Oh, don't even talk. Yeah, we're dealing with a 23-hour bug. It only after running at steady load, after 23 hours, it failed. And then... So, great. Let's fix it and test. That's another 23 hours. If, if, you're right. if you're right, yeah, yeah exactly. more than more than likely, you're looking at you know month-long debugging cycles for applications like that, and uh, you know unfortunately, what that's going to mean is in production, um, my guess is your application runs for more than 24 hours. You know, 
<laughs> and, and sure enough, it, it happens. And then you find out, oh, it didn't have anything to do with the 1,000 requests per second. It had to do with the 24 hours. Yeah. And, and, and so you're, you're starting to deduct, you know, what was going on there. And, and so I, I, that's, that's the challenge. I mean, that's not happening every time. When, so when I, what, what am I doing when I'm trying to improve performance, kind of back to the original question? I'm figuring out, you know, where, where is it bound? And, you know, largely what the problem is, you know, you're, you're finding in terms of performance, you're finding out-of-process calls are the problem. Okay, so, you know, if I'm to summarize what we all came up with on that panel is, you know, when we're looking at uh, getting per, uh, websites to perform and scale, if you, you need to be able to count the number of times you call out-of-process to service a, a particular request on a single hand. Okay? I do not have six fingers. <laughs> some some of us do. You don't want to, you know, alienate anyone. Well, and you know, I'll live with six. It's the twenty that's the problem. Yeah, I mean, the, the point is, often when we're profiling things, we see that uh, there's ten and twenty database calls, you know, uh, to generate some pages. And the idea is that you know we're we're normally watching that, and and you know, where are the out of process calls? Any any time I'm serializing. Serializing is a key problem. Uh, we want to look at how can I keep that in memory. And then now we've got this trouble. What about the garbage collector? Is that often mistaken for some other big problem? Or is that easy to identify when the garbage collector kicks in? Is it, what kind of a problem does that pose? And that's a great question. How do you know the garbage collector kicked off? I, I watch, I, I, I use a performance, performance counter, counter. I use a performance yeah. counter to, to figure that out. And, and frankly, that's the trouble with, with caching is that as you pull things into the process space of the caller, uh, you get better performance, but the problem is you start increasing your memory footprint. And as we know, you know, a common, a common question I ask in interviews is, you know, there, there's this, uh, this is memory allocation model in .NET, and it's absolutely awesome at one thing, and it's poor at something else. And I, and I ask people that, and the answer is that it's very, very fast at allocating memory. It's extremely fast, you know, faster than almost any other model. But it's very poor at deallocating and freeing memory, you know, on a schedule. And if you've got large objects that stay in memory for a long time, that becomes a problem once you start garbage collecting. So often the very type of memory that we gain all this performance from, this caching, it, you know, puts all this uh, data into the process space of the caller and it makes it more and more difficult for the garbage collector. Because remember, the garbage collector, when, it, when a garbage collection event occurs, it's walking through all the allocated memory and if it's referenced, it can't throw it away. Well, now so there's said, a lot that's allocated, like a cache that stays around for a long time. It becomes more and more difficult. It has to suspend the threads on that application for a longer time. If that's under load, then after a while, this, you, you end up the garbage collection event takes so long that it, you end up recycling the application. Now, pool. Doesn't the cache API, the cache object, doesn't that live outside the process because the, all of the data that's in there is accessible from all the sessions? No, it runs in the application domain. It's, you, it, it's in the application domain, but it's not in every. It's not per session. No, no. There's yes. a different. I mean, cache by definition is across sessions. Right. Yeah. It's still in the one process. Okay. But, but it's still you know you've got this two gig limit, and you've got you're still subject to the same application okay. pool, and it's gonna it, you know the app when it, when you uh, start garbage collecting, you're gonna 
not be able to throw away any of those global objects, right. anything that's static. I mean, there's a, you know, caching is, caching is actually, the cache object is better because at least, you, you know, it, it, you'll, as you start hitting the limit, it'll start throwing it out of memory. But and you then can catch you, that as well. Yeah. Right, absolutely. I mean, your cache hit rate is another thing that's, you know, easily shown in, uh, in performance monitor. But still, there is this, again, these two competing things. I want to, I get performance by stuffing everything into memory, but I get garbage collection and memory management problems as the amount of memory I consume grows. So imagine that I had many applications running on that server who all wanted to do this. Well, now there's, there's limited amounts of RAM available. And so if I'm at, you know, maybe I'm at a hosted, uh, uh, in a hosted application and they're, they're adding more and more applications to that server and every one of them wants to gain the same sort of performance benefit. And we get into this, you know, this problem where this great idea of pulling everything into the process space now starts burning us and it was better to keep it over on SQL Server. Well, now what if you can just add more RAM? What if you got a 64-bit box and you can up the RAM I mean, you're just really prolonging the inevitable, but you are giving yourself some breathing room. Well, absolutely, I think that's a benefit. So I, I, what I'm trying, to, I'm trying to emphasize is that there's this trade-off with caching, and often it's seen as a panacea that, hey, look, you know, that's what I need to do. I need to cache. And I you know, just want to remind people that the code becomes more complicated. You start in, ending up in this tug of war between is it better to allocate more memory in the process space or is it better you know, to have everything allocated and then fall out of scope very quickly so the garbage collector has an easy job. And you know, it, it would be wonderful. I mean, hey, we wouldn't all get paid so much if, in <laughs> fact, it was that simple. Right? It's, the reality is that this is a, a tough problem, and it, it needs to be understood that, that you know, those trade-offs... You know, in architecture, everything's a trade-off, right? We're, you know, we're always in these discussions in our architecture meetings about what are the trade-offs. And so I just want to make it really clear to people what the trade-offs are when they're dealing with this type of caching. I'd like to remind people that the microphone is open. If you have a question for Kent, just go ahead, step right up to the microphone, and fire away. I handle personal questions as well. Nice. Uh, cache invalidation, especially across multiple web servers. Well, that's, uh, that's really where the complexity starts, right? Because what happens is that you have an update happen that affects something that's in cache on server A. And, of course, it's not that difficult to throw it out of cache in server A, but somehow you need to have a cache dependency that throws it out of cache in server B and C. And, you know, so then you use, uh, you know, a SQL Server cache dependency, which solves the problem nicely in SQL Server. I really like that feature. Uh, but, of course, then you're in the corner case where... Your data isn't that's, that needs to be cached is coming from some web service somewhere else, and you know it lies outside of the SQL Server realm, and you end up forced. You know you're now forced into this problem of the corner case, and we all know when we're developing professional applications that the corner case rears its ugly head, and always you, when the CEO is looking. By the what way, what is the corner case towards that? The, the corner case here is I'm caching data. And one of the fields, a calculated field, in, in this example, which I'm construing on the fly, uh, comes from some service that, you know, changes it and, and exists outside of SQL Server. He's so, going, yeah, I'll, get, I'll give you one. Okay. Uh, exchange rates. Right. So you're calling some external service to give you the exchange rate, and you're aggregating it into the price of some field in a result set, and you're cashed up that result set. So any of the other fields that change, you, you can say, well, I want this cache to have a SQL Server dependency. Awesome idea. The problem is that if the exchange rate 
changes, you need now introduce some sort of service that's going to invalidate the cache based on the exchange rate service and not SQL Server. So then you say, well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to store the exchange rate in the table for SQL Server, and I'm going to put a notification on the table for SQL Server, and, you know, it's just we're starting to get into the complexity of the caching. Rube Goldberg machine happening here. Yeah, I like Rube Goldberg machine. Mousetrap. Yeah. <laughs> so, so that's the kind of thing that, that happens in the real world, and, and, it, and I think that, you know, that therein lies the problem with caching. It's, it's a great thing, but it, it always has this difficulty and it just needs to be understood that that's the process that you're going down, and that's that's you know that's the trip. Should we talk a little bit about um, what you've done to alleviate this problem in the marketplace? Because I think uh, most of our listeners will be interested. Um, so at Strange Loop, um, we accelerate out of process session, for example. So what we do is we run an accelerator in front of the application servers. A box. A box, a server. We run a server that sits in front of the applications, and what it does is it does automatic output caching, it does view state removal, it does session, out of process session manipulation. And the key for us is that we're not consuming memory on the application server. So, what we've done to try to deal with this is say, hey, what can we do? to accelerate the serialization and the performance of that page generation without consuming the resources of the application server because we always ended up in this trade-off. So, you know, what we do is, is accelerate in a very unorthodox way, uh, yeah. to be honest with you. Each time I, I explain it to people, uh, it, it really came from uh, spending time in the trenches and doing a lot of this, you know, work manually. And I would argue what we do is no different than what you would do when you coded all this stuff. But that's the difference, and I think, you know, like what you were saying about taking up developer, the best developers and putting them on scalability really hurts uh, in the feature department. You have, I, I don't know if there are any other boxes out there that understand ASP.NET, um, and maybe there are, but the whole idea is that you understand the browser, you understand ASP.NET on the other side, you see the stream coming back and forth, and therefore you can sort of do stuff and take the load off the server without putting it on the developers. Yeah, absolutely. A, a router has a very strategic point in the network, right? You get this gift of being able to see all the traffic. And then you can apply statistical analysis to things like caching, which are very difficult to do if you're in a, an environment where all you really have visibility is into each particular machine. So, you know, our, our secret sauce is kind of the, the strategic point in the network this unorthodox style of caching forward towards a router uh, and being experts in .NET, having right. made, all these, you know, made all these changes to the applications and said, well, is there any way we could do this without changing the code? Is there any way we could you know, kind of help that developer focus on the features? Because honestly, for me, the worst part of you know, improving and tuning the application is that it increases the complexity. So what you know, we're really hoping to do is to not increase the complex, complexity of the application code to let people develop the way they normally were developing. And just, you know, before we get off the topic, you've got the box in, some, in several customer sites where they're like, it's in, produ it's in production, it's Correct. being yeah. used, and what kind of results are they seeing? Um, when you're dealing with automated output caching, for example, one of our customers, uh, you know, without us, output caching deals with about 40 requests per second. Uh, and with us, output caching gets 4,000 requests per second. So, 
you know, any time, it, it, a lot like output cache. I mean, take an output page that, you know, has 10 database calls put it, uh, that, that you can put into output cache, and you too will see this miraculous difference. Right. The big thing for us is that you didn't have to change your application code to do that. So, you know, the results are dramatic, just like the results for caching are dramatic. Right. I mean, it, it shouldn't really surprise anybody right. that, that, you know, that's the type of results I that get, you get. It's just a brilliant idea, and I'm mad I didn't think of it personally. <laughs> All right, let's uh, change gears a little bit here. Uh, I wanted to talk about the performance equation. And I guess we, admittedly, I mean, you and I, have, uh, Kent and I have talked about this a lot. We did not invent it, so let's call out right away uh, to the folks at NetForecast who originally developed this equation. It's in a white paper. We'll provide the link to it. Uh, you're welcome to read it. They were talking the original performance equation very generally about how internet-based technologies need to be measured uh, to determine issues around performance. And, uh, and we tweaked it for web. Right. So it's going to be hard to visualize this and explain it. I've got it, it in my head. Uh, yeah, I, I do too, but now we actually have to communicate it in English. Um, so the, the response time of a web page is equal to... First of all, there's four components in this equation, okay? First component is payload divide by bandwidth. Right. Okay? The total makes number sense. of bytes I need to ship For against how long how did it fast take me to ship it? Okay? That makes sense. Plus the round trip number number of app turns that you make multiplied by the round trip time to the server. So if I have you know for example a web page that has fifty embedded resources, imagine that you know, it's, and I have a 50 millisecond round trip time. Which is good. Which is good, right? I need to multiply the app turns by the round trip time. Okay. And we modified the equation for reality, okay? Well, really what happens is it's round trip time, which is you have to pay for the first page no matter what, right? So you have one round trip plus app turns divided by the number of concurrent requests you're able to make. Times the fudge factor. Yeah. <laughs> oh, we're sorry, still getting to the fudge factor. Yeah, I, 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 w I wish this was simpler, folks, but imagine that a browser opens for each uh, application domain, right? It'll open two concurrent requests. So if, if, and if you don't have pipelining turned on, and I don't want to start with that, but imagine <laughs> if you don't have pipelining turned on, what happens is you open two sockets, right? And you're making requests to the application server, get me image one, and then it returns, get me image two, and it's doing two of those simultaneously. Okay, so you need to, the number of app turns needs to be divided by the number of sockets or the number of connections you open. That's element second, two. Element two. Okay, element three server-side compute time. How long did it take to generate the page? Okay, which often is the only thing somebody measures. They actually don't even think of anything else. All they do, when you look at a lot of graphs and you, you look at uh, Visual Studio uh, test and they say response time, that's the time it took you know, just to get that, you know, and generate that response. Or you look on the, on the, uh, uh, in, inside of uh, Performance Monitor, and you look at, you know, what your uh, request generation time is, you know, you're just looking at server-side compute time. Now, fourth part of the equation plus client-side compute time. So how long did it take to render the page, render the tables? You know, how, how long did it take to execute that JavaScript? Well, that also has to be considered. The, the number, I, in many cases, I've been in applications where I've got JavaScript, unfortunately, that's taking 
four and five seconds to render, and my overall uh, response time is six seconds. And I got, I got developers that are focused on caching database queries. Okay? And the reality is, even if they could get it down to zero, which I'm very suspect of, <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's still going to be client. four seconds because they're getting this, this client-side compute time. Well, I, I find that, I love that particular situation because I get so many people tell me, Ajax made my site so much faster. Look at these great stats. And then I look at the stats and say, hey, you didn't include client compute time in these stats at all. You offloaded a whole lot of server-side processing onto the Ajax, onto the client side, and then stopped measuring the client. Absolutely. So, so really the point in this and studying this equation for us was to have a holistic attitude to performance on the web. Right? We, we want to make sure, just like when I was talking about instrumentation, you want to make sure that you're attacking the right problem. Right? Because if, if what the problem that you've got is, is a whole pile of app turns and your latency across the network is you know, 350 milliseconds, and all, I mean, imagine component two taking all the time. Then you could fix all the JavaScript, improve all the server-side rendering, and still have a slow site. And so the idea is that if you haven't understood your performance in context of all the components, that you've got problems. You know, you're, you're, you're really spending money unwisely. And we'll add a link to that uh, white paper on the website. Uh, we have a question from the audience, sir. Step right up and get into the mic there and tell us your question. Hi, guys. Have you seen or read anything during the week about uh, IS7 and any new features in IS7 that can help? question is, have we seen or heard or read anything about IS7 during the week? Well, I can, te- I can tell you that uh, I don't know enough that I want to make a statement. I, I can tell you that a number of people have come up and peppered me with questions over it. And uh, Mrs. Bustamante is uh, coming to dinner with us tonight, and I'm going to be peppering her with questions because <laughs> uh, I know that a lot of the problems with uh, application domains and the amount of memory available uh, ha- has changed. I've read some of the white papers and, and looked at the componentization of, of uh, IIS-7 and the way you can reduce the overall code path by eliminating components, which is something we've really valued and seen value from uh, in our tests. But no, I do not feel qualified to answer those questions. And thanks for bringing our show to Screeching Halt, sir. <laughs> Woohoo! Uh, I w- I'm going to jump back into the performance equation because I, I'm enjoying working on it. And I, and I don't discount the whole element of people tend to work on server-side compute time uh, simply because it's their fault. You know, you wrote the code. That's where that compute time came from. Well, one thing, it, it, it's, it's not a real surprise that they do because, you know, a little secret after I went all about, hey, you've got to look at the whole equation. As the number of users go up, Okay. As you start dealing with a larger and larger capacity, invariably what changes? The server-side compute time. The round trips stayed the same. The internet, you know what, scales pretty well. You know? <laughs> that, that, that's not, there's no change. The bandwidth didn't change. That, you know, that's been a constant the entire time. The server-side compute time, because it's unique to every browser, it also scales very well. Client-side. Oh, sorry, the, the, the client-side. So the JavaScript takes the same amount of time to render on all, you know, whether there's 1,000 users or there's 10,000 users because it's 10,000 unique browsers. So what changes? The server-side compute time. So it's, it's not a real surprise that people start looking there. I think that 
I would want to start with when I'm looking at performance the entire equation. But it's not altogether surprising to me that we end up looking at server-side compute time because invariably once we start increasing capacity, that's where the problems lie. So from a scalability point of view, you feel the server-side compute time is a key factor. The other the other issue I often run into when I'm working with folks that are trying to do these kinds of tests is that they zero out RTT and so forth because they're testing only in LAN. They, they don't actually test in the conditions that their app is being used in. So absolutely true. Uh, we introduced JavaScript to do client-side compute timings. And that's the only way we were able to figure out what was going on. Uh, and we had to do it in production because, you know, if you have a public website, you just have no idea what's going on uh, and what your browser... Uh, actually, most often, when you have problems with client-side compute, you've got bad JavaScript that's taking a long time in some browsers, it's the, the, the customer support department that tells you that you've got a problem, right? They're the only ones the users actually phone and complain. Right? And, e and even then, they're seen as wisecracking, one-off people right, who don't get it. And, and, and so you've got all this anecdotal information. So you know, we've, we've really had to take a very systematic, constructive approach to inserting JavaScript. And you know, what, you know, when is the onload event called? When did, I, when did I actually render all my resources? And asynchronously make a, uh, a web service call to you know, tell us, hey, what happened? It's, it used to be a real taboo to insert that type of code into your page. But, you know, as, you know, people have just come to expect that, you know, especially if you're calling back to the, the, your own domain asynchronously, they'll, they'll really accept it much more so. But, you know, I, I recommend uh, getting some sort of profiling code uh, or, or, or instrumentation code, excuse me, into your, your page generation so you can actually yourself monitor what's going on in terms of page rendering time. Hey, I just want to give a shout-out real quick to our friends at Data Dynamics who uh, make ActiveReports.net, among other really awesome things. ActiveReports.net is great because uh, it allows you to just build your reports with an easy editor, embed them right in your application, provide PDF and HTML output, give your end users a report editor, royalty-free, of course, a great access report upsizing wizard, and all this for a price that isn't going to break the bank. ActorReports.net from Data Dynamics. Go check it out now at datadynamics.com. Ken, you know, all these problems could be easily solved if everyone just used a Mac. <laughs> really? Really? <laughs> yeah, use a Mac on the server, use a Mac on the client. All these problems go away. Uh, I, I think that... Uh these problems are inherent in all computing, Carl. Uh, Jeez, I can't even make a joke without getting a lecture. <laughs> now, thought, that was I funny. We they laughed. This, Carl. I thought we discussed they this. They did laugh. Offline this. <laughs> uh, I'd be very interested in your take, then, on stuff like Silverlight, because that really messes with the equation. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, it's still, first of all, the equation still applies. Okay. All right? I mean, there's no question that uh, it... You still have to get data down to the browser. Uh, you still got a payload, so you know how. I mean, even in the, the initial load time of getting the getting the Silverlight plugin, in, you know, into your browser, it's still, you know, the, so the equation still applies. It's just that once I get everything down there, now I'm looking at mostly client-side compute time. 
So I would say instrumenting stuff on the browser becomes even more critical because that's the only way you really have any idea about what's going on for your client experience. Um, you still got it's chatty. I mean, you still got web service calls. By and large, all that dynamic behavior is coming from making web service calls. You know, from your client, it's faster. I, I mean. I really, really like the downloader. I don't know if anybody's checked out no, the... That's very cool. You know, there's a, a component of Silverlight called the downloader control, and that allows you to aggregate your resources. So when we talked about... you know, it, I, I use a tool called Yslow from Yahoo. Right, it's yeah. It's a browser plug-in. I mean, it's part Wire, of Wireshark, I mean, Fiddler, there's all, all sorts of tools like this. And the benefit of Yslow is that... It gives you these, you know, rules and suggestions, which I always like suggestions. It's nice to get, nice to get a recommendation. And the number one uh, recommendation is always, and wait for it, make fewer requests. Ah. <laughs> Startling, isn't it? Um, so making fewer requests is critical. And one of the things that the Silverlight Downloader Control allows us to do is aggregate all of our resources into a, a gzipped cabinet and, and then access them uh, with uh, a... I believe it's set source command inside our canvas and pull them out by name from that aggregated resource, which means that you know now if I had two, I could I could split them, download them concurrently, right? Hide some latency and get all of my page resources in a single call. And I thought that was just absolutely special. I have been working hard to try to make that happen. And you know, for all ASP.NET pages, I can assure you that it doesn't work. <laughs> um, you know, it's a very, you know, the secure container is, is actually quite secure. I've been hacking it for some time. Can't get that to, you know, the reality is, I, you know, because I wanted to use that on any site. Wouldn't that be great if we could use that, you know, on any site if we had, you know, I, I don't want to write my own uh, browser add-in. I, you know, people just won't do it. It's going to be hard enough for Microsoft to get that adoption, never mind me and my little web application, especially if it's public. I want to use that type of feature. So, uh, I mean, there are absolute great benefits to that design. You know, there's, um, this reminds me of some code that I've written recently. Um, that In HTTP, when you do a, uh, a request for a resource like a file, you can specify a range, a byte range. And so, instead of taking a 100 megabyte file and downloading it on a single request, you can split, the, split it up over 10 re- simultaneous requests and just set the byte range to, uh, you know, the different sections of that file. And then uh, so long as you have good, you know, sound threading code to uh, put all those bytes together at the same, you know, into the same file, uh, you, can, you can really achieve some high performance when downloading files. And I did a little test, uh, and I wrote this uh, code, which I will definitely make available for all of you in VBNet that does this. And I saw an extremely, extremely uh, uh, big performance gain downloading just, I think I, what did, I, think I downloaded a 100 megabyte file in, in something like uh, uh, 48 seconds, or something like that, where it was taking seven minutes on a single thread. So that's similar to the concept of pipelining in general. So uh, it... it Unfortunately, by default, in both Firefox and IE, the pipelining switch is turned off. So what pipelining is, as opposed to connection pooling, uh, pipelining means that I'm going to make a request, and instead of waiting for the response, I'm just going to make another request, okay? And another one, and another one, and another one. So if I had those two, those two connections, I'd be able to issue 25 requests right away, you know, no waiting for anything to come back, hide all the latency, 
and get those those uh, requests back. You know, imagine much much faster because I've issued them all essentially uh, synchron- uh, asynchronously, very similar to what you're discussing. Um, and we find, you know, we'll we'll have a 10 second load time in in pages, and then we'll go to uh, a pipelining technique, and you know, one and two seconds. Unfortunately. By default, this is not turned on in the browsers, and a lot of sites just break the moment you actually use it. Yeah, that's true, because if you think about it, you're really increasing the number of hits you're making to the site, and the site's got to be able to handle it. Yeah, And if they're already maxed out, you know, it's not going to make any difference. Uh, we have another question, sir. Um, in an AP.net page, if you have a call to, say, Henry Okay. Um, do you find it better to try to optimize the order in which you call those, perhaps if it's an asynchronous call and it's going out different parts of the page, or do you find it better just to go into each one and try to make it work in that order? Well, the, what I would want to try to do is hide latency as much as possible in loading those resources. So what I'm more interested in doing is trying to call for them all at the same time, and, and I analyze whether or not sequence is important. So when I'm building the server page in the first place, I want to try to make sequence unimportant, okay? So I can call them in any order, right? And then I want to, I could use a technique called multi-connect domain. If I went and put uh, a wildcard DNS for images, uh, I could then call um, image one for the first image, image two, image three, uh, all in separate domains to get my image. And, and the way the browsers work, strangely enough, is they'll open two connections per um, FQDN, so per domain that I'm calling. So what I would want, in the best case, what I would do is I would call for them all simultaneously and not have my page break when I did so. Uh, so I'm, I'm trying to remove dependency on order when I'm, I'm dealing with the page in all cases. Uh, which allows me to make more asynchronous calls. That's the very reason pipelining breaks a lot of pages because you, you have all these sequential order uh, ordering built into the page and then you issue all these requests and they don't come back in order, right? And then your page breaks. So what I want to do is design the page so that order does not matter. That's my preferred. So if I couldn't do that, I would try to make as much of it work uh, so I could do as many asynchronous calls as I could, and then I would serialize the parts that had to be, absolutely had to be, uh, done in a specific order. Does, does that make sense to you? So, so optimize the process as opposed to the code? Absolutely, and consider multi-connect domain. I mean, that, that's a, a technique that you can go uh, read about. You know, it means you have to have control over your DNS, uh, and it means you have to change your code, um, but hey, we're programmers. I answered that one. You certainly did answer that one, and now I'm trying to think of a direction we should go in from here. Well, thankfully, I am not the host, and I just get to answer questions. <laughs> He's taking a picture. This is three guys caught in the headlights right here. <laughs> Dude, that guy's really smart. Ah, <laughs> uh, what's it? I'm thinking about. I'm jumping back to the performance. Wait, we have another question. All right, let's go ahead and take the question. We have a question from the audience. So five minutes ago, you guys were talking to me more, talking about um, client-side processing time. And uh, so I've got a, I'm using Long for JavaScript. It's, um, I'm essentially just wrapping that up and then sending that off to a web service uh, that uses Long for Net. 
to get my client side render time and combine that with my server side render time to get the statistics that you were talking about. Yeah. But of course, since I'm part of what I'm observing, I'm ultimately affecting it. And I'm wondering if there's a better way uh, to kind of fill that scenario. This is the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, right? Yeah. 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 Uh, I measured it, therefore I altered the measurement. Well, that's a problem. <laughs> I, I got to tell you, if I, if I had a, a clear solution for that, I, I think uh, there might be some sort of Nobel, Peace Pro or Nobel Prize in physics. Uh, I found that when we do our measurements, uh, that we've got our, our, the, the amount of extra, if I, w if I was to look at the, the trouble with observing, first of all, I, I set all my instrumentation and analysis on another server. So I try to separate that from my, the performance of my application, first of all, so again, by specializing. Um, and I, once I've done that, I find that the, the time taken, I minimize how much data I'm going to send over the wire when I'm, you know, normally I'm sending very, it's all, I, I use REST, so I, I'm, I'm not even making a real web service call. Everything's on the query string, so I'm absolutely minimizing everything about that particular request. It's done asynchronously at the end of the page, and at this point, we have not found the amount of time significant. And we went and timed it outside of the system to try to evaluate how much we were, you know, so, so you can't measure the system from within the system, and we can go into that. So I know let's not, let's not go too far with it. But what, what you can do as a human being is go and look at the actual performance on the computer. So on the measuring computer. Uh, yeah, so, so what you're really trying to achieve is I want an accurate measurement for the rendering time on all my browsers in the field. I go to my website once I've gotten everything working, and I sit with my stopwatch in front of the browser, I hit the page, and I know it's antiquated, but I figure out how long it took to load. And then I look at what my measurement was that I recorded for that, and until I've, you know, those two are somewhat copacetic and match, I haven't really done much of a job. And we, we found that we were able to achieve pretty accurate results, uh, you know, in the on-load event um, in measuring that and a very terse asynchronous call back to the server. So I just cross-checked it from without, outside the system, and I did not find that that was affecting my, my measurement enough to make the, the information unusable. So, so you're doing it via JavaScript instrumentation as well versus some kind of browser plugin that does it outside of... Correct. Correct. We, well, we compare it with YSlow, for example, which is a plugin outside of uh, the, the application. You know, we, we just compare it to other references and, and have found that it's a reliable measure. And if you look at YSlow, for example, what you include in that measure is very ambiguous. I mean, everybody has a different... They measure from the, the on-after-click event on the previous page to the on-load event of the page that you're measuring, right? Which, if you are the JavaScript in the page, you can't do, right? Because you weren't embedded in the previous page and you couldn't... Collect, but they can do that, you know, in, in their add-in. So... You know, absolutely there's compromises, but what you're really trying to look for is I want valuable information about what my users are experiencing. And so we just, you know, took and measured the quality of our solution, you know, outside of the system and made sure that what we were doing is giving people quality information. 
And we found that we were able to do that, that you know, the rest of the stuff was not that significant. And when it said you know, it might be 9.7 seconds, and the reality is that you timed it and it was 10. So yes, there was some subtle difference, but you know, 9.7 seconds was unacceptable to our users, so you know, we were getting valuable information. Kent, uh, I can't remember if Wiseslow can do this or not, but aren't you able to observe the execution of your, your measurement JavaScript in Wiseslow? Yes. So it breaks down, I seem to recall it breaks down the different things that it did through the rendering of the page. Yeah, absolutely. And it also makes additional calls back to the web server. So it, again, it changes the actual system. It's so difficult to get a measure that doesn't affect the measure. You know, to instrument something without affecting it is very, very difficult. So why slow, in fact, you know, creates more round trips to the server to figure out, you know, what happened in certain circumstances. So... Um, yes, you can, you, know, you can watch that. It'll show you what it was doing. Uh, and it's also got a really great graph to show you the, the, uh, how requests were serialized. You know, some were executed concurrently, some were uh, serialized, and I, I found it very helpful for analyzing. You know, it becomes very apparent how many connections you've opened to the server when you're looking at that graph. And YSlow is part of Firebug, which is a plug-in for Firefox. Firefox. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and if I really want to know what's going on, there's no better tool than Wireshark. So Wireshark is a... That's a, oh, that the new name for Ethereal. Correct, correct. And that allows me to capture uh, my experience in a, in, a, in a PCAP file where I'm able to go back and analyze every last transaction down to the, you know, from, from the frame to the request. It allows you to, you know, follow a particular TCP stream. Or a, a, so, so I found that that's the detail you need to truly understand what's going on. It's just a matter of how deep are you going to go, how, how much are you going to peel the onion. Right. So and it's at the network level. How many people here, show of hands, know about Wireshark? Okay, so I say maybe 20% of the room here. For those of you who don't know about Wireshark, uh, yeah, the previous name was Ethereal. It's a network-level sniffer, so it's looking at the TCP IP stack. It's free. It's a, one of the most fascinating stories uh, of software development a long time that there used to be a time when, when software that analyzed network traffic was incredibly expensive, and it's pretty much gone now. They've standardized on a standard format a file for what uh, uh, sniffed traffic out of the network looks like, and this, this application that supports and can identify traffic. I mean, not just look at your entire TCP IP stream, which, believe me, when you do this, when you have this experience, you will be horrified. The sheer volume of data that's moving across your network connection at any given moment is unbelievable. But what's happened is this tool has all of these plugins that will identify data for you. So it'll tell you all the different apps that are transiting data. And many, many vendors out there that use networking in some respect have contributed files to the, to the Wireshark program to be able to identify their data for you. It's, it's really, really a great story. And it's only because of run ads, by the way, that I know this. Is that We actually sat down and talked to some folks that were heavily into the networking side that said, you know, Wireshark, if you're not using it, you should be. Because you'll know more about what's going on inside of a machine, more about what goes on with your applications at the network level through this free tool than just about any other way you could look at it. Just can't recommend it enough. Absolutely. I mean, one of the other benefits is you can capture the files and then send them back. You know, if you've got a customer out there that's experiencing, you know, these problems, they can actually capture the problem and send it back to you. And as a developer, you get this great information of what actually was happening. It's uh, very, very helpful. And when it comes to performance, if you've got this holistic attitude now, then you're going to look at the whole performance equation. This allows you to look at the actual handshake. And 
you know, you get to find out the, the real complexities yep. of it. You get to see, you know, again, how many concurrent connections are open, you know, how they were utilized, you know, did it, was pipelining turned on? All these things really, you know, come out in that. And we found it, you know, absolutely critical in our development. Well, and by the way, it also goes, every time you hear those stories about how software has been found out that it's calling home without admitting it or so forth, it's because of Wireshark. You cannot hide on the network because it's very easy to say, Filter out all the known traffic, show me the unknown traffic, and they'll find you fast. And people do this all the time. They install a new piece of software and right away look at the traffic you're generating. So as programmers, when we think, oh, I'll just call home, don't think you can do it secretly. It's impossible. You will be found. So just be, be honest about it. Hey, I call home. Because they, they, there's guys out there who spend their days watching their network traffic. They're interesting people. <laughs> But these well, are the tools they're using. Why, thank you. And they you. will be calling you uh, soon. I, I think that, uh, honestly, as an ASP.NET developer, if you're out there trying to deliver performance, you know, your performance on the wire, that's part of your application. If you don't look at this stuff, you know, honestly, that's now part of, that's part of your purview. Uh, it, it's nice that you can you know, understand object-oriented development and you know, you know what design patterns are and how you've crafted this great code, but the reality is this is another part of the equation that you have to understand. And uh, I find it, it's a lot like when I started to learn regular expressions and realized that, wow, you know, learning regular expressions, wow, what a powerful little toolkit to put in my back pocket. And now, you know, any time I come to any sort of text, it's like, might as well be a database, man. I'm ready to go. You know, it's a, <laughs> I, 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 I'll, I can work magic. And I found the same thing with doing traffic analysis with Wireshark. All of a sudden, it just opened a whole new world for me where I started understanding at a new level what was going on on the network. And that turned out to be absolutely critical to the function of the application, especially when your job was performance. But I will say, you know, I'm a senior developer and an architect. This, I'm the kind of guy who gets fascinated by optimizing code and optimizing applications. And ultimately, my guess is there's going to be one of those people on any of the projects that really make it into production and go into, uh, you know, a public website. And if you're one of those guys, that tool set and that tool has got to be in your, within your realm. That, that's, that must be in your tool set. And with that, I think we're going to wrap up another stellar episode of .NET Rocks. I'd like to thank our guest, Kent Alstad. Big round thank of applause. You. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on. I, I, I absolutely loved it. Well, I know I loved it, and I'm sure Richard did, and I'm sure you guys did too. And I'd like to thank Dev Connections for uh, giving us this venue and, of course, all the people out there listening. Thank you very much, and we'll see you again next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website, 
at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a, a 